Let's go, baby. What the Funk is back. I don't think I've been behind this microphone in, I don't know, five or six weeks. It's been hectic. The end of summer, the start of school, lots of other commitments. You know the deal. Podcasting sometimes can take a backseat, unfortunately. But fortunately, we're back. We got JB Bendick, the man himself, out of Pittsburgh. Uh, we finally got to meet last week on a phone call. Felt a real kinship with JB. I think he knows a little bit about um, my business. I understand some of his various businesses. So we're going to get into all of that. But JB Bendick coming to us live from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania today. And the question I like to ask all of our guests, JB, is who are you? Who is JB Bendick? Hey, what a great interview question. <laughs> Thanks so much for, uh, of course, you know, thank you for the, for this time to, you know, to, to get with you. And, uh, I, I appreciate your can, you know, your candidness, and I think if I was to spin that first question on who is you know JB Bendick, I think it more goes towards like my my why. Um, you know, it's a lot of people out there like Simon Sinek. I think it's how you say his name, Simon Sinek. He he put yep. a lot of stuff on you know a person's you know why, and uh, basically over over the course of, of my of my life and my career, I've faced a lot of different you know challenges, uh, and my why has really come down to. Ba- to find better ways of doing things. And there's no better place right now within the uh, energy, oil and gas, heavy industrial complex, as I, as I always call it, um, for for that. So my why is to further the future, you know, I call future-proofing energy and heavy industrials, is to take all of like the, the heavy technologies that are out there and connect them up to legacy assets and companies, ways and means, and really get them to merge and to adopt so that everyone in, in the whole ecosystem can truly benefit. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I started doing this years ago in my consulting role, almost about seven, coming up on my uh, seventh year anniversary. Um, and what I've seen, I've been way ahead of the curve on that, you know, driving these conversations ahead, ahead of time before they've really started to, to snowball. And now they've really snowballed and they're coming to fruition. And it's really justified my why as to as to who I am and, and who, who JB is. And so I, I get excited about new technologies. I get excited about companies that want to improve, improve their ways. that want to be around for another 20 or 30 years. Um, so my why is to connect both both those, all those brand new technologies, all those legacy assets, bring them together so that they both can survive and really make the um, energy and heavy industrial whole complex really work and, and, and thrive. So that's my why. Hopefully that kind of gives you a better idea as far as who I am. Um, on the sidelines, I love racing. I love stuff within you know NASCAR, uh, mm. pretty much stuff within Formula One. I like anything that with the, going off that technology side that it requires absolute precision for execution, milliseconds count. Um, people say, how can you watch cars going around in circles all the time? And that's, the mechanics behind that are, are incredible. Um, same thing with golf. I can always always improve my golf game. Uh, but uh, the precision on that to take something from four, four, 400, 500 yards and put it into the size of a, of a cup that far away <laughs> and everything that plays into it, you know, oh, golf's not a sport either. I was like, yeah, you try walking eight, 18 holes in 90 degree weather. So I, I just love the challenges. I love the mechanics of it. Um, but uh I, and then also on top of that, on the side, I also do stuff within country music as well. So yeah. uh, I, I have I have that little little segment uh, as far as me too. So hopefully that gives you a really good good um, explanation. I know that's a long airplane, but hopefully that gives you something to, to kind of build upon. Now nah, there's there's a lot for us to dig into there, and I, I appreciate that insight. Um, you're in Pittsburgh today, right? Yeah, that's correct. So. 
my I broke out in the energy field about 13 years ago. You know, it all runs together. I have to keep thinking the new calendar years. Like, you know, how many more years into it? Yeah, I got into uh, uh, political science out of out of college, and I did um, some banking and heavy investments and mortgage banking and some some real you know Wall Street stuff, and that led into commodities. And I was a commodities broker, and at the time, a lot of people in Western Pennsylvania started coming to town. I always called them the oil boys, looking for for energy, and mostly it was driven a lot by range resources at the time when range resources was was very almost like unheard of, and yeah. they really come up here and start punching holes and really proved up resources underneath the Marcellus Shell. Uh, and I got to have conversations with them. You know, you'd be out in commodities, you're out trying to meet people, you're trying to you know you know get investment money, et cetera. And so, you know, they come to town and I pick their brain because I knew all the financials. I knew the politics. I knew how to run the paper and everything on the background, but I never knew how to dig a hole. Yeah. And so I was very curious. I'm always curious. I'm always asking questions. I, I, I just absolutely love, love learning and um, got to know him over, over beer talk. And I'm not a non, I'm not, te- you know, trained as an engineer, but I, I, I mean, I wanted to go dig a hole. Well, hmm. about a year into it, I got to know a lot of the guys. And I got a vouch. And they got me into Halliburton five years after that. I mean, I gave 120 hours a week, everything uh, at the prime of my life at the time. And ever since then, the last 13 years, it's all been, it's all been within the energy uh, sector, but that's how I got the break in, in Pittsburgh. And I got down to uh, Permian as part of a uh, reload package with, within Halliburton. I spent five, five full, you know, full years day in and day out down there and with um, family. And I have nephews now and I have, um, you know, parents I'm very blessed they are still here, but they're, I hate to, they're aging, they're getting older. And so as a result, I need to be more centralized. So I kind of shot call, if you will, from, from Nashville, just because it's central. Cause you know, taxi speaking of Houston traffic, you know, everyone's like, why don't you move to Houston and live there? I was like, well, I was like, well, shit, if if I did that, I could have one meeting probably a day because I'll be (laughs) five hours in traffic trying to get from one edge to the, I mean, it's almost pointless. It's almost pointless sometimes, you know, depending upon where you live in, in Houston and then same way in the Permian, if you're out there in the Permian, you know, I'm single, not married, no kids. You know, it's, it's, there's nothing, there's really bad, not much to do on the weekends. And it takes you a day. You got to hop into Dallas. You, you know, it's five hour drive. I mean, time, time in, in my line of work is very, very important. And so I need to find somewhere where I can balance out the, the needs of my family and my, mm-hmm. and my, but also get a text. So I kind of hub, if you will, in, in Nashville and I'm able to then fly to Pittsburgh, you know, uh, for family and, and, and shop call and do all my business up there. And then I can also fly, you know, you know, into the Permian or in Houston, I, it just gives me a lot more um, access. Um, plus, it's it's fun. It's a great, it's a booming city. Last five years on Nashville, man. I, I'm telling you, when you see that, eh. and uh, so <laughs> let me tell you this: I meet more people from Midland in Nashville than than I do randomly, like in like Midland, Texas. Honestly, really? like, I, I bump into people all the time. They're like, oh, where are you from? I'm from Midland. You partner where that's at, and I'm like, oh boy, <laughs> sure do, sure do. Uh, that well, that's great, and there's huge differences between the Marcellus shale and the Permian basin, right? So what, what a, what a shift for you, right? I heard some political science you're working at, uh, you say Halliburton. Yeah. Yeah. I was with, with, with big red. That's the, yeah. They're the ones that gave me my, my, my break, if you will. Nice. And you're up in Pittsburgh, you're doing the whole Marcellus thing, finding all kinds of natural gas up in the Appalachia. And then Boom, we need you to go to West Texas. We're going to transfer you down there. Talk about some of the differences, whether it be the technical differences, the um, terrain differences, the cultural differences between the Northeast U.S. living just outside of Pittsburgh and then going all the way out to West Texas and and Midland. What was that like, both from sort of a cultural and a a technical standpoint? So 
over the time that I spent in, in the in the Permian, one thing that I truly, truly uh, took for granted while up in Pennsylvania were trees and hills. Yeah. And, yeah. and now I, that sounds so like, OK, like like a, a stupid reply, but it's it's something like, you know, being up here, born and raised in western Pennsylvania, you kind of get, you know, get used to. But I love the thing about Texas. I wanted to get to Texas for the longest time because my, my lifestyle, the culture, everything was around Texas more aligns than um, technically like Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania politics. See, Pennsylvania and Western PA area kind of aligns more with Ohio, West Virginia, you know, even Agreed. though it's Pennsylvania. But most of politics within Pennsylvania is driven by Philadelphia and New York and Baltimore. It's kind of like two different cultures, two different states with, with, within one. Yeah. And so – when I got to to anywhere in Texas, especially in Midland, I mean, it was kind of like a rite of passage because I think anyone within the oil, truly to be in the oil field, should be exposed to the Permian at at some point. Great. And so I was honored to, honored to do that. Um, it was it was definitely you know a culture you know I'm gonna say culture shock because of of being the outsider. Because when I got down there, it was like 2014, and this is you know everything was blowing and going. I mean, if you had money, there there was there was work to do. The, the the problem was being an outsider was was and I mean most respect because I have a lot I have a lot of Permian friends and contacts and in relationships that you know still there and still call on so I mean I have to pre I have to preamble this with you know I don't mean it's any you know any any rude way but the, at the time it was very unwelcoming you know for for the for the outsiders and that might be due to the number of people like myself that were coming down there and and, and just hammering. But as you get as you, as you get to know the people there, you know they always say that they're very well. They they are the, the people. They're 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 good. Don't get me wrong. They're nice, good, hardworking, God fearing, tough. You know SOBs. But I think coming from outside that that nest, you know the the as I call the the good old boys club, they don't trust easily to let you in that in the, in those circles as far as business. Mm. And I think that comes from previous booms and busts where people come in all the time, drive up their their resources, you know, take up you know. Um, all their businesses, and then then a bus or something comes, you know, and then they leave, you know, they kind of like you know pillage it, if you will. And there's been all you know, I talked, I had a lot, I had a lot of conversations with a lot of these people about this, and they won't come on and say that, but I think I think they just want to see that you know that 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 you're you're serious about the Permian and, and who and who they are. Um, but uh, the thing that drove me really crazy was going between the Marcellus. Pennsylvania is also with the politics of it has very tight regulatory, you know, um, procedures there and. So it takes a lot longer to to get wells permitted if there's if there's certain you know uh, HSE issues. I mean to move a bucket of water for you know you have to have a permit. Now hmm. compared to what I see on West Texas, man, the, I call it the cowboy way of doing things. Um, <laughs> that was I was pretty pretty pretty, pretty eye opening. It gave me again more appreciation for the way that Marcellus does because of the of the for the landowners in in doing being able to go back and redo well pads and you know you don't find once a well's done you don't find any poly anywhere. I go to West Texas. I can I can find Paul on the side of a road, you know. Mm. From, um, and again, that goes back down to I think just the overall, you know, the history in the history of it. Um, but here's here's a connect for you. So the whole founding of of oil was up in you know up side of what is now Oil City or Titusville. That was where the Drake was 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 built. That's right. And so so people have forgotten that. And now I. I used to icebreak a lot of conversations with this, you know, and they say, oh, you don't know anything about oil. And I said, well, guess what? Permian won't be here if it wasn't for Pennsylvania. And, <laughs> and, and I, and how many people, and there are people in, is still in this industry that have no idea where it actually truly started from. And they say, oh no, it was, it was the city, you know, it was here in Texas in 19, it was a you know, spindle top. It was a Santa Ana. And I was like, no, I said, that's not where the technical first one was. 
And I got a lot of credibility from, you know, dealing with people, you know, that in that way. And it kind of broke some ice, a lot of conversations. And I think mm -hmm. they appreciated for, you know, for, um, from there. And a lot of the original money came from, from Pennsylvania, um, uh, from Pennsylvania as well for some of the very early fields back in the day, they put the money into mm -hmm. it and stuff of that nature. So anyways, um, to land my plan on this one, I would say that, you know, the, the people are very, very welcoming, you know, there, but to see both sides of the regulatory environment where it's really it's a lot more stricter versus a lot more uh, you know unrestricted is very very interesting. And I think looking forward, you know, on the technology side, I think you know especially with you know not to spin us on seismic activity and things of that nature that's going on in Permian and, and the amount of water that's going on. Sure. I think, and I hate to say this, um, but I think if 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 the RRC and if if, if uh, service companies operators don't unite around in, in improving their actual resourcefulness, I think that not just the state, the RRC will step in, I think that the actual federal government's gonna step in like USGS. I think if these earthquake activities start kicking up over towards a 5-0, I think the, the powers of the federal government are gonna start start kicking in and that that's gonna make, have a major ripple effect on how things things are done. Um, and so I don't know how I got on that one, but uh, that, that's, that, you know, that, that's one thing that, I, that I've seen, you know, as far as, you know, difference as far as a regulatory environment enforceability within, within Texas and in Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, I, j I just, I, I kind of, my gut saying that that's possibly going to happen. I hope it doesn't happen, um, you know, but there's the seismic activities that's been increasing and now in, in South Texas, yeah, you know, and yeah. Ford, and they have not been, even though they're, they're curtailing inflows on SWDs and you can finger point on, you know, different things and who's, who's to blame and stuff like that. But there, there's a causality, there's a correlation and there's a causality in the curtailing back the injection rates and it's still going up, 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 up. So something, something's not adding up. And I think once structural integrity happens where all of a sudden buildings start falling or, or there's a true safety mm -hmm. issue to, you know, to structural, I think the USGS and the feds uh, will, will step in and override the actual RRC. Um, it, it's, it's at some point, I would hate to see that happen. And people call me crazy for thinking that, but I think it should be something on someone. I think from a risk standpoint, companies should seriously be considering that, especially if they are truly like ESG. But so, but then what do they do? Right. So, I mean, SWD for my listeners that aren't familiar, salt, salt water disposals, you're, you're effectively putting back, um, wastewater into the ground, right. That you're initially pulling out of the ground. What then would operators do that that are in the permian basin with that water it's a huge opportunity i believe that a lot of the the water and let me give credit over the past you know five years a lot of companies have truly stepped up in in, in water in water management they put you know huge recycling facilities together they're using more you know i always say i call it recycled water everyone and then she says oh it's reused water but you know Brack water, so, brackish water, semantics, whatever name you want. Semantics, semantics. They've really put a lot of infrastructure you know, together to capture that back and to, to treat it and to, to take out a lot of the solids and to try to use that in their in their frack jobs instead of using fresh water. So I, I, I certainly give them an, an incredible amount of you know credibility for, for doing that because that it's a very expensive you know capex. Um, but there's also a lot of hands in the pot, if you will, especially on, and this is no knock on SWDs, but there's a lot of, you know, even landowners and, and uh, operators and service companies, everyone's got a piece of the pie when it comes to SWDs. Mm. And there's a lot of money flowing around on, on injection, you know, per, per, per barrel. Sure. And I think that the, the huge with, again, going back to when I said about Pennsylvania hills and trees and, and the green grass of it, I think there's a huge, huge opportunity. If there's a way from an economical standpoint 
to take a lot of that produced water and actually treat it to the point that it's absolutely, you know, agri grade, if it's down to yeah. a true potable grade to literally you could, you could build, and this is a whole nother topic for, for, for another day. I'm not going on this little tangent, but if you, if you start, cause Texas will have to change on, on its own, its drug laws and marijuana and things of that nature. But if you took that just from, from an agri, agri stock, you know, great. And you wanted to run, interference against mexico and, and uh, with the you know the, the the drugs that are crossing the border and, and marijuana all that all that nature and you want to get into the medicinal marijuana there's no better place as far as far as west texas because if you could reuse that water because you got mm. vast lands that are arid that with water you know it, again that's a whole nother another topic I, I raise a lot of eyebrows when i when i bring that bring that up um but that's something that's something there that that you that you can use for you know from greening the greening the areas and i think to a lot of ranchers depending upon if they have, you know, production on their properties. I think a lot of ranchers are concerned with aquifers too, you know, the amount of freshwater that's being, that's being take, taken out, you know, taken out of their, out of the resource on this. I, there's something I read in, in New Mexico where one of the aquifers, I haven't followed up on it. I guess it went, went dry somewhere in New Mexico. I don't know if, I don't know if it was in, in, in the, the, the Delaware portion of it or not, but basically they sucked all the water out of the aquifer. And now they're worried, they're even worried about a full collapse. Um, I, I read it a couple of weeks ago. I haven't dug wow. into it. I don't know if you're thinking about it or not, but, um, that chatter is getting around. I've talked to a lot of ranchers, you know, and you'd be surprised how many um, are really, truly concerned about the fresh washer, fresh water extraction uh, from, from a long-term basis. Oh, I mean, fascinating. Good, uh, good insights and, and interesting to think about because you're talking about an area that's effectively desert, doesn't have a lot of water, yet you're pulling a lot of water out of the ground and then putting it back in. How can that be treated and then reused? Um, interesting, interesting thought process. So when did you leave Midland? What what year? Uh, you said you got there twenty fourteen, and and then what happened? You were there for for a while. Where where did you end up going? When did you leave? Yeah, so t- t- timing. Uh, at the end of two thousand nineteen, I decided I need to get a little somewhere a little more you know central. Well, this is at the end of two thousand nineteen. We all know how twenty twenty happened, right? Oh man. So my 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 time my exits at the time you know was to to at least for the next year or so because i had a project going on in country music in nashville i've always had a place in, in nashville so going back from from midland you know on the weekends you know things to do as i said earlier i was always looking for things to do so my escape i would always be going to, back to nashville i have a lot of friends in, in that are uh, producers music you know singers songwriters publishers um and so I, I was always weekending there if you if you will or going back and forth sure. and so I, I already had a place in nashville and so I just basically, instead of doing day to day end of 2019, because I had a project coming up that we were pitching to one of the major networks to hub, at least for the beginning of, of 2020 there, just because of my time and I had everything kind of teed up on the consulting side that I didn't need to day to day be in Midland. And so the timing kind of really worked out well to the point where, um, uh, well, I should say, let me backtrack. Unfortunately, 2020 happened in, in the, I don't want to downplay that in any, any way, you know, since, since, you know, um, reform. So I, I hopped there in 2020. Well, guess what? The whole project, all that, you know, everything shut down, production shut down, touring shut down. And you know, I talk about like a double whammy. So they, so, so all of that, all of that, you know, was, was, was occurring. And so I basically have, you know, hub there, you know, in Nashville, you know, since then, and if I need to be back in, in the Midland or any parts of Texas, like I ever said, I, I, I fly in, but my full nexus is all in, all in Texas. I just stay at my place in Nashville and then I fly to Pittsburgh. I'm up here with, with, with family. Um, you know, my grandmother's, you know, 89, she's, you know, got, um, mm-hmm. dementia and there's some things going on, on there. I don't, I don't mind sh- you know, sharing with, with the public on that. And so 
I'm needed more up here. So I have the flexibility and I'm blessed in that sense that I can be, I, I can basically move where I need to be, whether it's for, for business, you know, work or for family, but I keep it between, you know, the, uh, you know, Tennessee and, and Texas and, and, and Pittsburgh. And so anyone that's out there was so funny is I help a lot of companies from that, um, up here that want to break out into the Permian because I've been through the ringer down there. I help, uh, huh. you know, them and vice versa because it is, um, it, it is two, two diff- different worlds, but these two plays are critical as far as anything on the energy side. There's, there's no, I mean, I think there's 30 billion cubic feet per day out of the Marcellus. There's 11 to 12 billion cubic feet natural gas, associated gas coming out of the Permian. I mean, that right there is a huge chunk. If there's any type of cutoff yeah. from there from an energy standpoint, it would wreak havoc on not just the United States, but but the, but the whole world. There's just a lot of overlap and similarities. Simorex, you know, they, they purchased, you know, Cabot. Uh, there's now talk with South, you know, chatter with Southwest, you know, Southwestern and... Um, Chesapeake. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Yes, Chesapeake. And then uh, there's one other one that was rumored, De- um, Dev- um, Devon De- and somebody Devin else. And, what was it? Devon and Crown Rock or Devon and Marathon? There, there's a lot of whispers. And I think the the big one, obviously, that fell recently with um, uh, Pioneer and, and uh, Exxon, like we're going to see some consolidation, right? And it, it's it'll be fascinating to see where this goes. A lot of people have the belief that consolidation is a good thing. Um, I have mixed feelings on it, right? It's always tough to see some of these companies go away and, and disappear when you develop a relationship and kinship with the people that work at those companies. And then all of a sudden they're going out and trying to find a new job, but it's the nature of this industry. It's a highly acquisitive industry and it's very finance driven that you're going to have people looking to reduce cost and consolidate wherever it makes sense. That kind of leads me to another question that I have for you is where do you see the oil and gas industry heading in the next, say, five to 10 years? You mentioned ESG. It's a topic that we can't really get around. I like to refer to it as sustainability, Uh, not greenwashing anything, but how can we create an industry that is a more sustainable industry as we look toward moving toward the future without any level of greenwashing to it. But I'm curious, like, what does oil and gas look like in five to 10 years? Is it going to be exactly the same as it is today? Are we going to see more companies leading into the, the CCUS space? Are we going to see more hydrogen? Um, are we going to see less drilling in the U.S., more drilling? Um, just curious sort of what your view is on it, because I know you're fairly well researched and you've lived this space in different basins. I want J.B. Bendix's take on where oil and gas is going in the next five to 10 years. I think the next five, five to 10, 10 years in a short, in a short run, yes, you're going to see some consolidation by, by the majors, mainly the fancy word that they call it is high grading where they're yeah. looking for a tier, tier one acreage. I think, and let me get my words here. So I don't, you know, get off to too many different technical tangents. I think in the last couple of years, post post COVID when People were, you know, were coming back, and all of a sudden, oil went to went to negative on paper, and it just Crazy. caused massive. I mean, you know, people filling bathtubs and pools with oil and you know, <laughs> those, those, those days. And I thought it was a joke, but I mean, there was literally there were some people like asking to dump pools out at the time. I, I kid you not. Like I was like, you got to be shitting me on now, <laughs> you know. And um, so what happened is, you know, companies got serious about being profitable, which I, I've long said I think is important because you know a path to profitability is critical because when you're when you're profitable you don't need to do as many concessions you don't have to squeeze the service companies service companies don't have to pay cheaper labor and everyone at the end wins both both service companies vendors and operators and those that pay have to have have profitability but profitability should never be greed and i think when we both get too far apart on greed 
that's when things get you know get get messy. So I think consolidation is going to happen now because a lot of egos are hurt um, after Pioneer. I think in reactions because a lot of these. Um, I mean, again, this is you know my opinion. I think a lot of the, the senior decision makers at some of these uh, these operators uh, that they, they don't want to lose lose their grip on on their power. I hate to say that that you know they don't want to be acquired. They want to be the acquirer, or they want to position themselves that they do, that no one will want to acquire them. So they they do financial engineering. They load up on debt in in, mm. in some way, or they they play around with acreage to the point where no one wants wants to wants to chew on them per se. I, I, I've even gone back on, on the oxy back in the day with Anna Darker, and I said the reason they 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 play, like a poison pill is an illegal term that they use in in in, in bank, banking and stuff. But I still think oxy poison pilled themselves when they did Anna Darker because they knew that there was probably sniffing around to be acquired, and they didn't want to be acquired. I know it's an unpopular ah, opinion. Interesting. So, they, so when they choke on that, about you know. About, you know you saw like look at their stock i mean their stock has not done what it's supposed to do even carl i can got involved and he kind of backed out a little bit now now most of the stock is owned by berkshire hathaway sure you know which you know he's slowly you know the majority not the majority owner but the significant i think he's above 25 percent now i think is he really uh, wow yeah i think he's above 20 percent. i think he's approaching i i could again please please i mean don't quote me i mean this things are always moving it's somewhere around around that so what's what's happening is I think some of the you know these consolidations are going to happen for number one to high grade their their tier one inventory to the point that they are able to um, not have to go out and source. They basically can say, okay, listen, on a pod development schedule, we we know that these resources are here. They're proved up now on on the back end. Our financials look real tight. We don't have to drill. You don't have to produce on them. If we want to do it a much more you know um, continuous acreage, we can do longer laterals. You know, technology has pushed the longer laterals. You know, up to two three. Sometimes even four miles long. We don't need as many rigs. We don't need many service companies. We we can turn on the taps, you know, within a year or two, you know, by our production schedule, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the consolidation is going is going to happen in in the short term. I think those that don't want to be acquired are going to do are going to overpay for uh, for, for some deals that they're going to hate. <laughs> um, and 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 again, you know, I I, I put this out there. I like look at Chesapeake. Look how long what Chesapeake did. I when I broke out in the Marcellus, we did a lot of wells for Chesapeake. We we even I was part of rigs that set records at the time in the Marcellus as far as you know, how fast we were drilling and things of that nature. Nice. And then Chesapeake grew, 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 and sure sacked sack dead on. And then what? They, they slowed the window bankruptcy. They come back out and now they're selling off assets. And what they're talking about now? They're talking about digesting Southwestern. And you sit there like, dude. Haven't you last decade learned anything like as, as to, you know, as, as, as to what, like, um, and so, you know, that chatter on, on the South, you know, Southwestern side, and if you look at their financials and, and dig into them now, why, now, why is that? Is it, you know, is it consolidation in the Marcellus because there's pipeline constraints. So up in the Marcellus, Utica, there's no more pipeline to get to market. So yeah. now people are trying to get their, their resources together for, so that they can consolidate and get, and get, and get scale to get to market better. No one's really talking about that. That's another story for another day on that one. But I think here's what's going to happen in two to five years. I think as they start to again, you know, do these acquisitions, the cost of capital is very expensive. There's yeah. going to be a huge opportunity in about two years for people that are smart now with the higher prices and can build up cash, especially as the market you know tightens, because there's going to have to be carve outs. I think companies are going to sit down there and go, "Holy moly, we have way too much acreage on here. The lease costs are on these. We're never really going to drill these." And th that's when all on the down low, you have a lot of, you know, I call them, um, you know, I think they're running out of titles, but you know how co uh, companies will go get like a 250 to a billion dollar private equity investment 
and they yeah. name their company after an animal. Like, you ever notice that? Like, you know, some animal <laughs> energy company. I think they're, I mean, they're, they've got to be running out of names of the animals. Like, I mean, and so you, you'll, you'll see that pop up and they'll start buying some of, the, some of these acres. And you're going to find out is the number one investor or, or a strong investor in that bigger company is also the private equity arm is, is the one that has the, has, has the money to do the carbon. It, it's just so funny how things move, man. It's so connected when you really, when yeah. you really dig into it and you ask, ask a lot of questions, I think there's gonna be a lot of carve outs and they're going to have a company that comes out and all of a sudden $500 million investor capital, boom. And they, they get acquired for 3 billion by the company that they just, you technically carved out of, <laughs> you know, like you sit there. I mean, so I think, yeah, short term, it's going to be painful and consolidation. Medium term is going to be carve outs. And then I think um, whole world production need, needs oil. I don't, I don't, I don't buy one bit into less oil down the road. I think, I think we're one to 2 million barrels every year, year on year in, in world production growth. Um, and I think as the world destabilizes right now, you've seen, you know, Hamas and Israel, you're starting to see, you know, Ukraine, um, China and Taiwan, you're starting to see destabilization across, across, you know, the, oh, the, yeah. the world. I think, I think people are going to want to start sourcing energy from truly free, free countries that have more st- you know, political stability, which is going to be a lot of the U S Aust- you know, Australia, the, the, those neighbors. And I think that hasn't been fully digested yet. Um, and I, I, I'm rambling on again, but I think, and time will prove me wrong on this one, because um, I'm not sure when this is going to air or not. But I think I think Israel will probably take kinetic action against Iran at some point, and I think they're going to hit some of those oil terminals because the sanctions are not curtailing the the black market oil, which is out there that no one wants to talk about, and the black market oil is funding a lot of this geopolitical destabilization. Mm. And I think if, if someone, if you kinetic kinetically means you have to take like physical action. So if they take kinetic action and they actually attack, I, I not so much the fields because they don't want to destroy the production because the world needs the production. I think it'll be more of like the tankers or the export terminals because it's not a direct attack on actual production facility. If they did that, if someone, someone did that, um, $120, $140 barrel oil, SPR is drawn down to 270 reserves. People really can't touch that now because they're worried about the salt caverns caving in. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, anyways. Yeah. I've been going on. Sorry about that, Jeremy. I, I yap a lot, dude. So please cut me off. And I, I've had a Celsius this morning with, or coffee. So I'm really going, man. So just uh, tap your brakes, JB. Tap your brakes. No, I I like it, man. This is this is what we do on What the Funk. I wanna I wanna get it all. And before we get too far away from it, according to my friend Google, Warren Buffett owns 26.65 percent of all the outstanding shares in Occidental. I'm not sure how up to date that is, but it's even more than 25 percent. So you are not that far off. Yeah, I, I think the it is worth talking about with the situation in the Middle East. You know, I'm Jewish and it's been a very difficult few weeks for me um, personally, for a lot of uh, friends and, and family, obviously. And you just you just hate to see what's going on over there. It's, uh, you know, it, it, we, we live in the U.S., which is obviously a generally peaceful place. And the conflict over there is just complete and total opposite. But this is an oil and gas centric podcast and the geopolitical nature of what's happening there is also something interesting to observe, right? With Iran saying, oh yeah, we're involved in this too. And then does Israel take action there? Does the US get involved? What could this do for oil prices? I, I tend to agree. Um, the, the lack of stabilization, I'd say, on the geopolitical landscape internationally is something we have to pay attention to. And I would imagine that oil prices will continue to rise as there's a level of uncertainty. You also mentioned the SBR 
Um, that's something worth keeping an eye on too. I believe Biden kind of drained the strategic petroleum reserve. You could question whether that was a good decision or not, but nonetheless, there's just not a ton of oil in the reserve right now for us. So we're heading into a very fascinating time uh, within the oil and gas industry landscape. Then you know, if if you kind of pay attention to the the news as well, right? You've got the the Toby Rices of the world going out there saying like, let's unleash natural gas, let's unleash LNG. And he probably has a point because there's just such a glut of natural gas here in the US, especially in your neck of the woods where you're literally sitting right now. So how does this all play out? It's it's gonna be something interesting for us to keep an eye on. Um, To pivot a little bit, I see the screen behind you. It says Navitas. I believe that's one of the companies that you you own, run, represent. What what do you guys do? What is Navitas? Yeah, so... uh... I always say Navitas, uh, the Navitas organization. If you Navitas. ask Google, it's just so it's Navitas. I, I call it Navitas. I call it Navitas. Um, I've I've gone into systems saying like, how do you really pronounce? Because it, it it basically means energy. So it's the energy organization, and that's just my my consulting arm um, that I that I put out there, and I I truly you know want to hopefully you know continue to to grow it. But in essence, you know my company that's the umbrella that I, that I operate underneath for for advisory work and anything that touches in to the future proofing of energy is where we go. Um, mm. I've, I've pivoted a lot over the past, you know, I, I, we can relate on, uh, on being an entrepreneur, really finding, you know, the, the market where you fit in and fit in the, the market and what you do. And I basically, I get retained and I go out and I, I work with two, two types of companies. I work with companies that have operational challenges within energy and heavy industrials, and mm-hmm. they'll bring me on and I'll go out and I'll assess and I'll do an audit on all their operations. And I'll say, okay, hey, listen, here's here's a, here's an action plan. Here's a roadmap of if, where I think efficiencies can be driven. And here's, you know, here's a step-by-step, which one's the low-hanging fruit. And if they, yeah. if they we kind of then we'll let down. Once we do that, then this is where I'm different than all these other consulting companies that are out there. I will then go out to these emerging technologies that, that solve the problem, you know, because we fix the process first, we identify the problem, and then I will present solutions to the, the client in that sense so that the, the choice that they make is theirs. A lot of these consultants out there today, they go out and they bring in all of their solutions and they, and they, they throw it down and make them, again, the word where they choke on, they, they force their, their companies to kind of you know choke on and say, this is the best way. There's no other option. You're going to use this one. I like to bring in some options that I know can solve it for them. And let the owners and the key decision makers choose that solution, and that way that adoption is there, and so you don't have as much churn and burn down the road when all of a sudden you don't have the buy-in because people didn't feel included. And so I do that, and then I also go to these um, startup companies because I'm so involved in this world as far as startups and high technologies and and yeah. advanced technologies stuff of that nature. I will do some consulting work for them on the go-to-market strategies, and I think that's where we at times overlap too because you help a lot of these companies go out to market, um, and the hardest part with that is I have so many conversations and I've been you know, into this market so long. Sometimes some of these companies on the, on the, on the go to market on the startup side, they think their solution is the best. And you're like, man, I could tell you some stories where here's what went wrong with these other companies. And, but you can't really tell them anything. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, you can advise them, you know, and again, I'm about choices. And a lot of the times there's a lot of different, you know, pushback in the market, on that, and I think I think I think there's a lot of opportunity for for these companies that are out there to really penetrate penetrate these markets. But again, just like the operators and service companies, there's a there's a disconnect bef- between the, these technology companies and these um, uh, 
legacy, I call them legacy assets, which means they've been doing it for so long, you know, that they don't, they don't bring on any new innovation. And to really spin this whole thing back to the, uh, the Navitas organization, everyone's talking about AI, AI right now. I was talking oh, yeah. about that five years ago. And, and there, there's the amount of stuff that, like that I'm right in on um, either, you know, from certain Intel briefs that I get or you know, high level, you know, confidential conversations that I have. The plethora of, of innovation that's about to hit the market over the next couple of years is mind mind blowing um, with, with, with what's going to be coming out. I just hope that a lot of people are, are at least trying to have conversations on saying, OK, are we lean and mean or do we have the best operations and processes in place and what's our go forward plan? And a lot of companies, unfortunately, out there do not have a go forward plan. They can't look past the quarter, you know, the next three months. Not saying you have to implement it. I just hope that people would say, "Hey, listen, this is where we are, and this is our, this is our, here's our quarterly plan, and here's our next one to two, two, two years, and here's our next five years." Because the, the pace of innovation is truly, um, truly amazing. What's out there? And I, again, I'll defer back to you because you know you, you you go out and you you rep these on 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 your on within you know your futures, funk futures, you know. Company, um, I don't know if you see the same thing. I mean, we could disagree on this, but I don't know. I don't know if we kind of gel on that. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because you're you're into it more on the on the day to day sell side, you know, sell side of it. I started out that way. I kind of got away from it just because of uh, the amount of expectations. I, for, for me, it just wasn't you know manageable, and so I kind of backtracked and pivoted and got into you know again to the consulting side of it more than the consulting side so sell. So I'd love to you know get your, yeah. get your thoughts on it. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. I mean, you know, Funk Futures at its core, I don't, I generally don't pitch Funk Futures too much on this podcast, but nonetheless, I'll jump into it. You know, we do um, contract sales, fractional interim sales leadership, a little bit of marketing as well as recruiting, mostly for energy tech companies. When I launched this business about three years ago, most of the companies we were working with, I would put in the traditional oil and gas tech ecosystem, we've seen a lot more sustainability tech start to come into the market. The biggest challenge, I think, is just simply the sheer number of solutions that generally to the operator sound the same. Like If I look back on the, the course of my career, call it almost 16 years now in um, oil and gas tech, if you just had a piece of technology kind of early on in the shale boom, especially software, you were going to get business because there weren't enough solutions yet in place and it wasn't an overly competitive market. Well, that started to shift really probably 2016, 2017, 2018. You start to see a lot of technologies come out that are pushing production optimization, route by exception, analytics, um, you know, uh, some of the AI starting to come into the space, some more OCR. And, and then all of a sudden, there becomes this inundation process where you're an operator and you're like, okay, a lot of these things sound similar. Do we already have something that kind of covers this particular workflow or should we be going out to find it? And it starts to create a situation where I think operators develop a healthy level of skepticism around, man, so many of these solutions sound similar. Like what makes sense for us to look at? Should we just go to an established vendor and see what they have? Or should we embrace some of these newer technology companies that are coming into the space? So for me, as I talk to new companies that are looking to expand their footprint, primarily in the US, a little bit in Canada as well, with their tech, for me, it's really important to say, okay, what is the market asking for right now, right? So having a consistent dialogue, not just on the consulting side, but directly with operators, with IT leaders, with operations leaders, 
with CFOs, right? With CEOs and COOs of small, medium, uh, private, and publicly traded oil and gas companies to understand what are their challenges because you just can't push solutions on people, right? There has to be some pull coming from the operator as well. My view is that uh, there will be a lot more around the um, the modeling and efficiency and emissions related reduction um, in the oil and gas space. That's going to come fast and furious, and we'll start to see who the the key players are in that universe. I also think from what like from what you said, AI, not just in the back office but also in the field, is going to become something that is really an emerging space in oil and gas, and also just just leveraging any level of efficiency and automation that a company can latch onto. We've seen that kind of lead up to this point, but I think the leading operators will be the most tech-centric operators, and that's something that will be fascinating for us to play out. The bigger companies obviously have an advantage because of scale. They can reduce their lifting costs. There's a lot of benefit for them, and they can be a little bit more creative as far as solutions that they adopt. But if I'm a really small oil and gas company, if I have a few hundred wells, if I'm in a more obscure basin, maybe somewhere in Michigan or somewhere in South Texas, in California, I would really lean into what can technology do for me? Because as you know, JB, finding resources is difficult right now, whether it's somebody to go out and weld something, to paint something, (laughs) to go from well to well and just be a lease operator. There are just simply less of those resources now. So then what do you do? You look for ways to supplement that, to replace that with technology. So I said a lot, it was my turn to kind of uh, word vomit, but nonetheless, I think definitely on the sustainability tech side, on the artificial intelligence side of things, um, we're going to see companies leveraging data more and more in, in what should be a really fun time uh, to be in the energy tech world. So that, that's kind of how I've seen things shift and evolve. But you asked me this question in two months, like my answer could be completely different. Right? I mean, that's the pace of technolo- technological change in um, a commodity-driven industry like this. There's an appetite right now for technology. Oil prices drop 30%. That appetite may disappear. Certainly hit the nail on the head, too. Before, again, um, the massive inflation that happened in the, the economy, you know, mainly due to a lot of you know, government spending, the, I, I used to have a saying that you, know, you want to be profitable as an operator around 30 at the time, 35, you know, you want to be, I'm sorry, not be profitable. You want to be break even around $35 a barrel of oil. So at the time prices were moving back up towards around 70. And I was like, man, if they could really hone in on all that out the door, landed $35, you know, give or take a dollar here, a dollar there, but they're getting around 70, again, a dollar there, a dollar, you know, here or there that, you know, that's a hundred percent dollar for dollar. They're, they're again being profitable because I remember at the beginning of the conversation sure. I said you know it's important that everyone be profitable because profitable means everyone gets paid and paychecks are, are, are people. Yep. Um, now that's really changed. I think the new dynamic is not even seventy. I'm thinking eighty five ninety is the is the new seventy Probably. range. You know, even though they say oh it's commodities and go back to my commodity broker days saying oh it's a commodity therefore it doesn't really get into inflation. I was like well. The the constant attack on, on resources, you know, from across the world, you know, going green and on everything on EVs and you know, oh, net zero by 2030, 2050, uh, and oil, all that type of stuff. Um, I, I think a lot of people are not having sober sober conversations. And I think going back to your point on the on the ESG or the sustainability and, and emission side, you're seeing a lot of different companies pop up. You know, 
uh, in the last couple of years on tracking and recording those, those emissions, whether it's using, you know, drone technologies and LIDAR, whether it's using, you know, sure. uh, you know sensors, you know, infield sensors, and it's going in the cloud. And how do you track measure? Because what's going to happen, I, I forget the date, I think it's somewhere next year or 2025, they're going to start being fined because they, the IRA, the legislation that they passed, if you go past a certain threshold, there's a certain dollar amount that you're going to be paying in in in, in fines and to, right. in order to do in order to do that. Correct me if I'm wrong. You you know you have to be able to track and re, you know record those. Whether it's enforceable or not, that's that's going to be a whole another deal. But the way I look at it, you know, the whole sustainability thing and uh, is the fact that why would you want to as an operator? Why would you want to be losing your own resources and not capturing and having that go to market? Why would you want it to bleed off? You know, why would you, that's a, that's a, and it's, it's detrimental also to the, it's not just your resources as an operator. That's the resources that whoever is the leaseholder and the people that have different smaller percentages sure. and division order, you know, analysts. And so pushing it forward, that's just, that's being efficient. You know, you want to get every molecule, you want to capture every molecule, right. not because of the environment, it's because you want to capture every, every molecule. And, but we don't talk about that. You know, we can do this finger pointing crap. Um, and, and I don't think it does, does anything. I, I think on all sides at the end of the day, you know, need to have a more sober and, and be more reasonable, um, with, with everything. Everyone's just, all, everyone's a hothead, you know, and even myself, I can be a hothead too, but at least, you know, <laughs> I, I usually, you know, I back my up by, by data, not by feelings. I always say facts over feelings. I mean, you know, we can all disagree. You know, everyone can be you know, disagreeable, but we have to be professional in, in our approach and have sober conversations. But there's so much emotion involved in it these days and it gets, and it gets to be cloudy. But the emissions technology is, is certainly there. That's not going to be going away. And it shouldn't be because yeah. of just the environment. It, it should be because it's a molecule, it's a resource, and yep. we should be stewards of it. We need to be stewards of, of the resources that, 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 that we have. Um, but I think on the AI side, what's going to happen is there's always say TID, truth in data. And I think the AI yeah. is going to start revealing a lot of stuff that people, you know, unfortunately are in denial that they do not want to face. But I also think, too, the problem with the, the, um, the tracking, the tracking of uh, emissions is from a liability standpoint, because now yeah. now they can go and they can sue. Now there's a claim. Now they can tie yeah. it up and, and leak out. And that's the other that's the other problem, you know, too. Again, there's going to have to be some sober conversations on on liability and, and insurance it's because you know there's insurance companies are pulling out now they're not even underwriting or insuring operators and, and well wow. guess what if yeah service companies i mean that's probably another topic for another another day people can't get into like you talk about manpower logistics and having drivers you know, be, you know truck drivers and haulers sure. because of nuclear verdicts that that that, that occurred now Entrance trying to get in and be their own carrier or part of a carrier cannot get insurance to actually be able to get a truck to be able to fit the need for for the services because we have such nuclear verdicts and nuclear verdicts are basically where all you know there, there's a uh, something very substantial you know, occurred whether it's environmental it could be a loss of, uh, unfortunate loss of life yeah. and not not where it's you know five or ten million dollars you know to to make whole and I, I use those words lightly there are hundred million dollar verdicts there are ones that to the point where now insurers are going to say, you know what, we're not going to even insure this. We're not even going to get in this game. And now, wow. now the banks get into it. Well, if you're not insured, now the banks aren't going to lend. If you ain't going to lend, you ain't going to have your capital. You can't put your capital into into grow. And it's a whole cyclical, you know, mm. cyclical turn. So, so I think we all need to come to the table, have a sober conversation, realize that the world needs more energy and stable energy. And getting back to what you mentioned too, um, you know, about that is once we have more more you know, state stable energy, which means, you know, good, good quality, quality supply, then the whole world benefits because 
uh, what really bugs me at the end of the day, what really drives me on, on the future proofing energy and why I believe in technologies and bringing people together and making the industry better as a whole is because so many people, and, and again, I mean this with utmost respect, so many Americans, especially Americans, have no idea that there's over a billion people that still don't have access to clean drinking water or, or even stable electricity. You know, it, when, you, when you really get outside the bubble that's, that's here and you start to really look at the whole world, and it, it's, it's shocking, all because they don't have access to a basic continuous unit of power. Sure. Um, sure. You know, and it, oh, we're going to do solar panels and we're going to put out, you know, windmills and all, all that they don't care, you know, they, they, they need it. They need it now. And I, I just don't think there's any other better place than America, the United States to, to do that on LNG, leashing LNG. We need more pipelines. We need to get the market. Um, and we can, we can lead the way we are with our exports right now. You know, we crossed like 13.2 million barrels, but we'll see what happened. Last time that happened, OPEC turned on the supply. Oil is getting back up there. There's geo, you know, geopolitical destabilization going on. SPR is down. I think OPEC's going to have to have a move, and I don't think they're going to be. I think they're going to play like they did last time. I don't think it's going to be like one million barrels. I think possibly they could turn on the spigot, spigot again, if you will, and you know bring it back up to like three million barrels per day. And if it does that, what happens to our our, our here? All of a sudden, we go from hundred dollar barrels back down to seventy or sixty, increased costs. And now, guess what? That damn cycle over <laughs> and over and over again. It. And it's just like, ugh. So that answer your question, by the way. Sorry. Yeah. No. No. It's good. It, it's fun to get in your brain and get some of these questions. Fi final question I do have for you, and we could talk for hours, but I do have to cut this off at some point. Um, what advice would you give to your younger self, if any? It's it's a question that I I like to ask all of my guests because you know hindsight is twenty twenty, and it's it's very clear. But for you. I'm really curious, like, what would you tell your younger self? What would you tell young J.B. Bendick uh, in terms of what could make your life a little bit easier as a young man? For, for me, it would actually would be to let go more often. Mm. So and, and by that, I mean, when I was in, in, in school, I was it, it took me almost twice. It took me a much longer time time to, to to learn you know i was put into what they call remedial education classes or special education whatever name that they give it these days and so when other people were out playing and, and, and running around the yard and things like that i would i had to study i had to work at a very young age two to three times as harder just to, just to maintain a certain level of of of, of grades if you if you will it wasn't sure. that i was you know stupid and and at the time i was you know i, I guess you could say you know bullied but i wasn't like physically bullied whether they're sticking my head into a you know, to a toilet there are people <laughs> that are physically bullied that way sure um it was it was more psychological and you know, emotional bullying and but i was determined to work my way out of the classes which i did i worked my mm -hmm. way out of i graduated taught my class went to college you know political science you know the, the whole thing we covered but at the time i look back on it man and i think i I was always I had I was always set in my mind that if I don't get this grade in A, I'm not going to get to in college. And I was thinking that way like I was in fifth grade. Mm. And I wasn't able to let go and enjoy the moment, you know, the time that that I was there. So if, if I look back when I you know, as a kid, I would tell my tell myself, you know, to let it go. Like my parents were right, like, dude, go out and play. You know, this isn't going to kill you. Kill. But I, in my head, at the time I was telling myself, if I don't do this, I, to me, I'm failing myself because I, yeah. I, I hold myself to a very high level. Of, dis of discipline and character. And when I, when I fail myself, I beat myself up on it and I, I should let myself go a, a lot better. And I think, um, 
that's what that's looking back is probably what, what I would have changed. But then on the flip side, I don't think I'd be as critical as I am today in how I think and look at things and how I ask questions and my curiosity because sure. I love to learn. And I, I think if I wasn't that tough on myself that I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to study. I wouldn't want to to look at look at all sides and, and why is it that way? Well, how do we make it better? Why do you know the solutions out there? People are like, you know, always tell me, dude, why don't you just go, you know, go to work, punch in, punch out and do your do your job. I was like, Man, I'm not gonna be like ninety percent of the rest of the population. Like, and nothing against that. And that's the entrepreneur in me. But I don't think if I was that tough on myself, I'd be the entrepreneur that I am today. Probably um, not. Probably not. I mean, I think that that, that is, <laughs> as an entrepreneur, I can say there's some days where that sounds really nice. Right. But, but I also know I'd find something wrong with that. Like we kind of talked about last week, like say I were to just give it all up and go back and get a job. Well, somehow I'd find a way to be frustrated about that too. Right. So that's sort of just going to be my nature. And I think that the nature of a, of a hard charger to um, whether you're working full time W2 for somebody or, or running your own thing. JB, this was a lot of fun. Um, I appreciate your insights. We kind of met on, on LinkedIn. You've, you've amassed a good following and, and I enjoy your perspective. Um, where can people find you, uh, whether it be on social media or websites? Like where can people go and, and check you out? Yeah, so my website, um, and hopefully my head looks okay. I, I played around with the light here. Hopefully it's not been too glaring for you, but it's, you know, navitasorg.com, which is N-A-V-I-T-A-S-O-R-G.com. That is sure. the landing page. I, I run a good operation. So through there, there's all the different ways you can come in contact with me, of course, through LinkedIn. And knock on wood, if you message me, as long as it's not like the stupid sell, sells, unsolicited stupid sells, you know, on, on LinkedIn, make an attempt to be authentic. I will get back to you. <laughs> I'm, I'm very, I'm very good at it. Um, but just don't, don't please don't, you know, reach out to me and try to, you know, don't act like we, you never even looked at my, my LinkedIn profile or anything of that nature. And I, I put that out just because I get a lot of, um, solicitations and things. Like that. It's ridiculous, it. dude. It is absurd. The amount of people reaching out to me for stuff. It's like, you know, have you considered outsourcing your software development? I'm like, we're a services company. I don't know, like, wh where are you getting that I would like do a, an ounce of research before reaching out? It's crazy. Yeah. And, and so the, I, I, again, I just put that out there as an encouragement because then it hurts us too. When we, uh, when we have an actual right. possible solution, it goes, it falls on, on, on deaf, deaf ears, but that's how you can reach out to me. If you have a legit question and, and you make an effort, a unique effort and don't put me into some kind of like automatic, um, trickle down <laughs> social thing, please. I will definitely get back to you. Um, and I'm pretty, pretty quick at that, you know, that, that way. But um, yeah, other than that, um, and you can also engage you know, on, on socials, you know, too, like through through LinkedIn. It, um, please, uh, I, I'm always very professional. You know, I might push a lot of buttons because I want to generate conversations and make people think critically. Uh, and I can speak a lot, say a lot of things that other people privately message me saying, man, I wish I could say that, but I can't because of my job. Or yeah. um, that, That's one of the rewarding things, uh, you know, like, man, like, dude. Um, so that's like a, like a humble brag. I engage on, on socials, on my, on my comments, just keep it professional. I know I said shit here. Uh, I normally don't, you know, you're do allowed, that. you're allowed to do that. Don't worry about it. Uh, my, my oil filled lingo, man, I just have a flick of switch, go from the field, you know, field talk. I, I'll, I'll, I know we got to go, but I'll leave with this. So it took me about a couple of weeks. I went from the field in, into sales cause I wanted to learn all the tools, you know, that you, sure. how to do things. And I didn't even realize I was in meetings and I was like, yeah, you know, you believe that some bitch. And I'm like, oh man, I'm like in a meeting with executives. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, dude, you, you come from the field? I was like, yeah, like three weeks ago. Oh, uh, we could tell. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Got to check yourself. 
Well, JB, I appreciate you, my man. This is this is a lot of fun. Best of luck with all your your current and future endeavors. And I have a feeling we'll we'll be having you on here again. But appreciate your insight, my man. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for listening, by the way. I know I yapped a lot, but uh, truly, hopefully I made sense. And hopefully this just does well for those, you. Those, those are the we, best guests. It's less work for me. You know, yeah, like less editing, right? <laughs> See ya. Hey, take care.